The word unique is a unique word. And I just use it in a way that one of the definitions of the word is defined. It is unique by comparison. By comparison, usually, of something that is unequal, unparalleled. And so to say unique is a unique word is to compare it to other words. And to say in certain contexts, the word unique is exceptional, unparalleled. But the word unique also can be defined as one, one and only one, one of a kind, solely one. That is, there's no comparison to it. It is the only one. And we use the word unique in those two ways in our vocabulary uh, as we use the word to communicate different things. We'll say that's that's a unique tie. That's a unique that's a unique dress. Or we'll say he or she has a unique personality. Or he's one of a kind. He's unique. And usually there's something that's there that we note about that person. Many times it's in derogation, not as a compliment, but sometimes it is as a compliment. But the way I'm going to be primarily using it today is the one of a kind. None of the like it. Solely one of a kind. And the thing that I want us to think about this morning is the unique church that belongs to Christ. The unique church that belongs to Christ. I think we could use the word unique in both senses to say this. There is no one unique like God he's only one one of a kind but by comparison to idols he is he excels and uh, and and none other are are equal to him Isaiah will use that kind of imagery throughout in chapter 41 and chapter 44 to speak of the greatness and the power of Jehovah but when we think about the church that belongs to Christ if if you have been a Christian or a member of a local church of Christ for any length of time, you've probably heard several disparaging things that are said about the church of Christ. For example, you probably have heard something like this. It said, well, the church of Christ thinks they're the only ones going to heaven. Or the church of Christ thinks they have the answer to everything. The Church of Christ thinks there's no one like them. Well, the question is, how do we answer those kinds of things? How do we we shape our, our thoughts and answers about that? Is indeed the church that belongs to Christ, and notice how I'm using it this way, the church that belongs to Christ unique. I want to point out just a few features to you this morning that I think make the church that belongs to Christ unique, and then we'll come back to what I just said at the end of the lesson. First of all, when I think about the church that belongs to Christ, it's unique because of its nature. The church that belongs to Christ is unique because of its nature. In fact, the term that we have for church, that we use as church today, as almost exclusively used today as a religious term, was not the way that the term was used initially and not the way that the disciples used the term. For example, 
as Stephen speaks in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, he will speak about, in verse, all about verse 36. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt as in the Red Sea and the wilderness. This is that Moses who said that the children of Israel, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, that you shall hear him. There is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with me, the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. There you have the word, the word congregation that is used there is the word that is translated to called out and the word from which we derive down line etymologically the word church, those who are called out. But here there was no, no intention whatsoever to use it in a religious setting. It was just simply describing a collection of people that were part of Israel. If you turn to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, also you'll see how this term, term is used. In Acts chapter 19, you have the problem here that Paul is uh, making some inroads in Ephesus with the silversmiths. And there's a girl they've com- uh, that, they, that they've converted, and, and now then the gospel's eating to the pocketbook of the silversmiths, and they're getting upset about that. So it says, verse 32, Then some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly, there's our word, was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So here the, the idea is there's a gathering of people, but they don't know why they're gathered. But now drop down to what he says in verse 36. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple or blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. There's our word again. This time, it's not just simply a crowd of people that are gathered that don't know why they're there. They may be called out for something, but they don't know why they're called out. But here it is. Now you're going to appear before the court. You're going to be gathered. There's going to be a collection of people gathered before some legal authority. But then he says in verse 40, For we're in danger of being called in question. For today's uproar, let that there be no reason which we may give to account for this orderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. There's our word again. The word assembly used three different times in Acts chapter 19. None of which carry with it any religious overtone whatsoever. All of which had to do though with a gathering of people. And so they understood when they used that term that was there, they were talking about not a thing apart from people, but they were talking about people. But there was no technical use of the word. It was a very general use of the word. However, when we turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, in verse 13 of chapter 16, you'll have that famous question that we are well aware of, that the Lord asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you have the answer of Peter that is there. And he says, some say that you are Elijah, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. And then the Lord said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, verse 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. What's the Lord talking about? Is the Lord talking about an entity apart from people? Or is he talking about, I will have my people who belong to me? That's what Peter understood him to be saying. Peter understood him to be saying, and this time the Lord uses it in a technical way. And he uses it in a way that has now taken on a connotation for us in a spiritual overtone. Initially, the word was used just to speak of a gathering of people. It was talking about people gathered together. They know why they were gathered, but they were gathered. Sometimes they were gathered before a civil authority. And then sometimes they were dismissed from the crowd that was gathered. But here the Lord says, I'm going to establish a people that belong to me. The significance of the thing that makes the church that belongs to Christ unique, one of a kind, is that when we think about the church, think people. Think people. Think people who belong to Christ. Now, when I say people belong to Christ, there are several different ways that word can be used. Sometimes it's called about a whole assembly called together, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then sometimes it talks about all the people of God for all times living and dead. And so it's a very general use of the term of all people for all time living and dead. I will have my people for all time living and dead. All those who have come to me in obedience will be my people. And speaking of all people whatsoever. But then sometimes... The term is used in even a more technical way than that to apply to a local congregation in a local area. For example, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see both references to a general use and then a more technical use called local. Look at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 1. To the church of God which is at Corinth. Do you see that? Church, think people. To the people of God who are at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who all in every place, there's our general use of the word, all in every place. So he's addressing those people in Corinth, and then he speaks of the people who all in every place, he says, have called in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, you'll have the seven churches of Asia, like you'll have the church at Ephesus, the church at Pergamos, the church at Thyatira, and so on. You'll have the seven churches. Here you have this locality, and there are a collection of God's people that belong to him in a particular locality, but you're still talking about people. If Google is correct, Coca-Cola is the largest, single largest beverage company in the world. But you can take away all the people that work for Coca-Cola and you still have Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is not the people. But when you think about people that belong to God, if you take the people away, if you take Christians away, 
you don't have church. You see the difference there? Here you have this major corporation, and it will still exist whether they have anybody working for them or not. But you take people away who belong to Christ, and you don't have a church. The church that belongs to Christ is unique because of its nature, its people. Second of all, the church is unique because of its organization. Because of its organization. If I use the word synod, that is a, that is a dated term that will go over many people's heads. So I'm going to find that for you. Is a council or a gathering of an ecclesiastical council, a council of religious leaders that come together that decide for all who are under their authority, for all those who submit to those ecclesiastical leaders. You have a general council that has convened to decide matters for the church. And so you have the hierarchical structure of the leaders that are there, and then you have the people who are the church that are under the hierarchical leaders. And those hierarchical leaders can decide what they want for the people under them to do and to believe. And that's happened a lot in our day and time. For example, among the Methodists, they have a hierarchical structure where they do have a synod, a council that is made up of ecclesiastical leaders that meet and decide what those who are part of Methodism are going to believe and teach. They decide when the preacher moves and when he stays. But most recently, there has been a major division among them because that hierarchical council met and concluded that they would begin to have fellowship with homosexuals in their local churches and even ordain homosexual ministers. And there were a part of those who were part of that Methodism that said, no, we can't agree with that. And it was stated that if you break off and you lose all the benefits that go with being part of the Methodist Association. You have this association in council, but if you break off, you can't be a part of that council or that association. There was a group that broke off anyway. There have been hierarchical leaders that have met in conventions, and they have concluded that today that it is right for there to be women preachers and women in positions of leadership in churches across the land. You see, they have their own hierarchical structure that's there. But we don't get to meet and decide. We don't get to meet and decide what we want to do when we want to do it, if we're going to belong to Christ. If we're going to belong to Christ, we don't get to meet and decide when we're going to do what we're going to do, that we don't have the Word of God to support what we're going to do. We'll get to that adherence in just a moment. But the local church does have organization to it. For example, you have men who are called elders, shepherds, bishops, pastors. Those are not four different men. In many in the hierarchical structure I just, I just described to you, they're different men. But when the Bible speaks of elders or speaks of bishops or pastors or shepherds, you're talking about the same men, but you're describing 
among those men, there are different functions. For example, if you take a diamond ring and you put it under a microscope and you begin to look at it, you see all the functions of the diamond ring, but it's still one thing, it's still a diamond ring. So if you take those men who are identified by their function as those who are elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, they're the same man, but then when you look at them on the microscope, you have different functions. Now, those elders don't get to meet and decide what they want to do that's apart from the Word of God. Elders do not carry legislative authority. Elders don't have authority to make edicts or decisions for the church that the Word of God does not lead them or guide them to make. They don't have that authority. Now, obviously, there's some judgment that's involved. That there are some decisions that judgment does necessitate. For example, you have the occasion in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where you had this man that is uh, sleeping with his father, uh, committing fornication with his father's wife. An ugly scene that's there. And Paul rebukes them. Well, the time comes in which somebody has to make the decision it's time to separate ourselves from this individual. Or like in Matthew chapter 18, when when your brother won't hear you and he won't hear two or three witnesses, and it says, then tell it to the church. Who's going to precipitate, who's going to initiate that action to tell it to the church? Well, obviously, elders have something to do with initiating that action to tell it to the church. Now, let me put a sidebar in here just a moment. The elders initiating that action to inform the church is not the action of separating ourselves from that one. That's only the informing. That's only informing the church of the action necessary to be taken by each individual in that local congregation. For example, back to Corinth just a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, I think, speaking of that man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it appears that man repented. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if I'm correct, Paul then says, the majority, the majority did this. The majority would imply there was a minority who did not. The majority had separated themselves from this man, implying a minority of people did not. And so Paul making that announcement, writing that in the book of 1 Corinthians, was not the separating. The people had to do that, and the majority of the people did that in Corinth. Back on point. Sidebar over. But elders don't make that decision. And then also you have, having a local congregation, you have men who are deacons. Now, their specific function is not identified in the New Testament. There are men who are asked by the church to perform specific functions for that congregation. A special need for that church. And so those men are asked specifically to perform different functions. And then you have men that are preachers. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Because in Ephesians chapter 4 you see this laid out, I think, the best place that it's laid out for us to see most clearly. Look at what he says in verse 11. And this is, this is what we're talking about. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Do you see that? And why did he do that? With the view to equipping of saints in order to do the work of ministry, in order to do the work of edifying of the body of Christ. Now, obviously today, we don't have apostles and we don't have prophets. But we do have evangelists. We do have pastors that teach. And as Paul addressed this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, we have saints and so what's the purpose of all these particular functions? 
he says, to equip saints through the work of service and the work of edifying of one another till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ till we all help one another grow up into Christ Jesus in all things till we all help each other attain a likeness of Christ. That's the purpose and the function. So you have it by its organization. And then when we think about the organization, right next to that, I would put it unique because of its authority as well. Because of its authority. You think about the authority that derives from the apostles and the apostles' teaching that was there. And so you have the church that belongs to Christ that then bends to the Word of God and submits themselves to the Word of God. Again, there's no organization apart from the Word of God that gives direction to the people of God. It's the Word of God that gives direction to the people of God. And so we have authority that is mentioned. I think that's best expressed in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verses 16 and 17. Here Paul writing to his young evangelist Timothy. This is what he says to do. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to good works. What is the man who carries the word of God to do? How is he to accomplish his work? Through the use of Scripture, through appealing to the word of God. And then we have the church that belongs to Christ is unique because of its activity. Because of its activity. When you think about the work that belongs to Christ, when we think about our, resp- our, our relationship to Christ, I don't know whether, whether the statistics are, are, are true or not, but they sound relatively close, so just go with me here. 90% of what we do as Christians is individual. Which means 10% of what we do is collective. Most of what we do as Christians is individual. There is a select time that we come together as a collective where we function together. What that means is no one has a responsibility as individual Christians. Other individual Christians do not share. For example, it is not... My single responsibility, because in crude ways to say, I receive a paycheck from this church to be the evangelist, the only evangelist of this church. It's not Jordan's responsibility because he receives a paycheck from this church to be the evangelist of the church, to do the evangelism for this church. You can't put your money in a plate, in a bucket, or send it through Zale, however you deposit that money among us, and say, I've put my money in a plate, and now then you do that work for me. There's no hired evangelism that will do evangelists that would do the work of evangelism for each individual Christian. Now, myself and Jordan, we have a responsibility because we're public evangelists, we're public teachers. We also do private evangelizing and private teaching. 
And here's how that works. I have a work to do. Jordan has a work to do. The church has a work to do. So we partner to do that work together. And the people who partner together to do that have the right to be supported to preach the gospel. But because a man receives a paycheck doesn't mean the church tells that man what to preach, when to preach it. Furthermore, the elders don't tell that man what to preach and when to preach it. The one that tells that man what to preach and when to preach it is the Lord. The man that preaches answers to the Lord. Now, albeit if he's part of a local congregation and there's a difference between him and the elders about what is taught, then there's going to have to be a meeting of the minds somewhere. It is called a partnership, right? And if the elders of a church say, we have this need, we'd like for you to consider preaching on this, then if he's going to be a team player, what's he going to do for the good of the flock? He's going to preach on it. Because why? Elders and evangelists don't work separate from one another. They work hand in glove with one another. They're not adversaries of each other. They're partners of one another working together, each with a different function. But it is not the paid man's responsibility to the work of evangelizing for each individual because money is contributed to a plate for him. That's not why he's supported. Let's create this another case. In Matthew chapter 25, the Lord will talk about those who you see that are hungry, those who you see that are naked and you clothe them, those who, are here, who you see thirsty and you give them drink. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. I have that responsibility to do that. Now, is there a responsibility the church bears with regard to providing benevolence for those among them who have need? Yes. For example, in Acts chapter 2, when the 3,000 stayed over, they had a need that was there, and they saw that was need, the need was there, and they brought their goods and laid them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles gave to those who had need. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 6, there's a problem, because now there's some among them whose needs aren't being met. And so there's a responsibility we have collectively toward one another when there is a need that we can supply for one another in the area of benevolence. But benevolence is the fruit of Christianity. It doesn't produce Christianity. And then there are occasions in which a church has more need among them than they can care for, and one church can send to that other church to provide for their needs to be met. That's what you have with Macedonia when Paul said, I didn't even ask them, but they begged to be part of it. Here you have the saints in Jerusalem Corinth is sitting on high center. I've got to get them off high center. I'm going to use Macedonians as an illustration. And Macedonians say, we want to help the brethren in Jerusalem. And they chose a messenger to carry that for them, to meet that need. But what you don't find is you don't find a collection of churches in a city deciding what the work of those individual churches are in that city. The only collective and cooperative arrangement you have among churches is when one church has more needy than they can provide for and then one church helps the needy in that local church to be provided and that's the end of it. But you don't have citywide churches collecting together to decide work for local churches. You have each local church that is independent, stands alone, and is autonomous and answers to the Lord themselves. Let me illustrate what I think the value of that is. If there's a network of churches tied together by some hierarchical structure, then whatever it infects 
part of that structure affects the, the whole. That's called a network. I've learned from Craig that when I have a message that pops up on my computer that I don't understand, I either text him or call him immediately and says, Craig, do I need to click on this to open it? Because out of my folly in the past, I have clicked on it, opened it, and Craig's had to take all day straightening it out because there was a virus connected to it. And that virus connected to it affected everything on the network that was there because it was what? Tied together. If I just have a computer, it's my computer with no network whatsoever, I don't have email. I don't have your mail, I don't have my mail, I have any connection to anything whatsoever, just my computer with my word processor, and that's it. And somehow there's a virus that gets into that machine that is my virus and my virus alone and affects nobody else. That's my virus. I'm independent. I have no connection to any other network. It belongs to me. Well, when you have a collection of churches collected together, under some kind of common oversight, whether it's citywide or state or national-wide, and when a virus infects part of it, it affects all that are connected to that network. But if each local church is autonomous, and there's no network connected to it, and a virus infects that church, it does not affect every other group of people that identify them as a local congregation belonging to Christ. It only affects that group of people and if that group of people apostatize or fall off they're the only ones that are affected by that not the whole you see the thing that makes the church that belongs to christ unique is our activity but each of us as individual members of a local congregation have this fundamental responsibility that cannot be shared with any other. And that is, I have the responsibility and you share that responsibility. We share the responsibility together to make sure we help each other attain a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My preaching and teaching should be aimed at helping you attain a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our teaching should be met, uh, aimed at helping each attain a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. My interaction with you should be helping you attain a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's not the elder's responsibility solely. It's not the evangelist's responsibility. It is the responsibility of each one that comprises this local congregation. It is each of our responsibility. I can't put a doll on the plate and hear it ring, and then cast it off to somebody else. I can't pay to have that done. Next of all, the thing that makes the church that belongs to Christ unique is its adherence to the Word of God. Its adherence to the Word of God. There's a, state, a, a phrase that was used years ago called solo scriptura by scripture and scripture alone is what that simply means. This point and authority go really close together with one another. But there is an adherence to the word of God. I don't bow before any other authority but the word of God. We have an adherence to his word and we cling tightly to his word and we covet his word. In 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Notice what Paul will say in verse 2. And these things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I take this word, you take this word, and we inscribe that word on the hearts of others. And as we take this word and inscribe it on the hearts of others, we help others adhere to the word of God. That word adhere is the idea of be glued closely together. You have the idea of super glued. We're super glued to the word of God and will not be separated from the authority of the word of God. That's what makes the church that belongs to Christ unique. And then finally, the thing that makes the church of Christ unique is this. Our love for God. In Matthew chapter 22, when the Lord is asked that question, which is the greatest commandment of all? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I don't know if you've heard of the movement or not called Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. It's a movement of a collection of Christians to bring all who are Christians, and this is the broadest use of the term, not in a specific use of the term the New Testament uses it, all in Christendom together under, under one common oversight, although those who adhere to that Christian nationalism are split and divided themselves. And the reason for that is this. We want to bring all under Christendom under one nationalism, one nationalistic structure, so we all can politically align ourselves as one together. The church that belongs to Christ owes allegiance to Christ, not to a political party. The church that belongs to Christ is not a political movement. It was not a political movement, the disciples were said, that turned the world upside down. You can search the New Testament till you're blind if you want to. And you're never going to find where the New Testament says, in order to be a Christian, you have to be a Democrat. And you're never going to find the New Testament where it says, in order to be a Christian, you have to be a Republican. And you're never going to find where the New Testament says, you have to be an Independent. All it's asking us to do is this. Love the Lord our God. And to do that, we don't have to align with any nationalistic movement, put everybody under one political banner, although under that political banner there's division and strife that attends that. There's nothing that's one about it. You see, let me backtrack just a moment with this adherence to the Word of God just real quickly. Because it ties into this. Loving the Lord our God and adhering to the Word of God makes us one. It makes us one. I did not say that making us one, making us one would mean we would agree with everything there was to agree on. There may be disagreements along the way, but there's one purpose. There's one purpose, there's one goal, there's one mission, and that is to love the Lord our God. And whatever the difference is, we first of all are going to love God and love God's Word and adhere to God's Word. And when we find ourselves away from God and God's Word, we're going to connect back to God and God's Word. We're going to love God and adhere to His Word. 
And we're not going to take the liberties where we have things that we can't find authority for to put as a part of our collective or individual lives. Why? Because we love the Lord our God. He is preeminent. When we think about the authority and we think about it hearing, we all bow to one king. When we think about the authority and adhering to the word of God, this is an autocracy, not a democracy. An autocracy means there's one who rules. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, All power hath been given unto Christ in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. All power and authority have been given unto him. All principality and power, all authority have been given to him. This is an autocracy. We bow to one king. He's our source of authority, and it's his word we adhere to. And because he is our one king, and we follow his source of authority, we adhere to him, we have a love for him that will not separate ourselves from him. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and that's not just in word only. That has to be in heart, and that has to be in life. And that has to be true individually, and it has to be true collectively. No one can do that for me but me. And no one can do that for you but you. We each have that responsibility to the Lord. But ultimately what makes the church that belong to Christ different is this. Paul uses this expression in the book of Ephesians. One new man. One new man. One new man in Christ. People who are lost, people who have sin-stained hearts and lives, the people whose hearts and lives have been wholly given to the Lord because they love Him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and have had their sins washed away, and now then have spent their life being transformed into His image. The thing that makes God's people unique above all is that you have transformed lives. Lives transformed to look and to be like Him in heart, in attitude, in activity, in authority, adherence, and love. And that makes the people of God unique, one of a kind, who talk different, walk different, dress different, and have different activities that characterize their life. Peter will say in 1 Peter 4, Think it not strange, they speak evil of you, because you run not to the same excess of right with them. You change. What's changed about you? What changed is our love for the Lord and our spite for Satan and for sin. What makes the people of God unique is that when you see the people of God, you see the face of Christ. And when you bring them together, you have people who are organized. You have a, an appeal to an authority that hears the word of God. And you have a people whose activities are aimed at helping one another attain that measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. But here's the underlying motivation. Because we love our God and love our neighbors ourselves. Now, I began with the speculation that perhaps you've heard 
the, expect, the speculation, the statement, prejudicial statement that says, well, you Church of Christ think you're the only ones going to heaven. If you're applying that to a local church, no. No. But if you're applying that as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to all people of God everywhere for all times, living and dead, then yes, because those are the people that belong to Christ. The people who belong to Christ are the people who are going to go to heaven. You know, it's interesting. John said in 1 John, they were of us, but they were not among us. And not everybody in the local church, and it may be me, is going to have the right heart. Not everybody in the local church will be saved. Because maybe our activity in our life is not what measures with Christ. But all who belong to the Lord, because they have submitted to the Lord and obeyed Him, all of those will be saved. So when someone tells you, well, you people in the Church of Christ just think you're the only ones going to heaven, are you talking about a local church? Is that what you're talking about? Because the answer to that is no. But if you're talking to people who for all time, all lives, living and dead, who belong to the Lord, the Lord determines that, not me and you. I don't get to determine that. I don't get to determine that. And you know, here's one other thing. I hope this isn't heresy. But God's the judge. And maybe there's someone I think he can't say that he says he can save. Because I'm not the judge. Maybe there's something in his grace that he knows about that person's heart that I don't know. And here's a person sitting in an assembly like this and says, yeah, I know their heart. Maybe me. He's not. That person because of his heart or her heart and my grace. I know them. They are. Only God knows. Only God knows. Here's the answer. Only God knows those who belong to Him. And because I have my name on a registry of a local church that is identified by the descriptive phrase Church of Christ is not a pass-go-free card. I must still do what I must do to be brought to Him and obey Him. You see, the church that belongs to Christ, the people that belong to Him, they are unique. They're one of a kind. Solely one of a kind. Nothing like the church that belongs to Christ. We don't invite you to the church this morning. We invite you to Christ. Because it's not the church that saves. This church has no power to save you. The elders here have no power to save you. 
Church has no power to save you. The gospel has the power to save. We invite you to Christ. Now, when you come to Christ, he'll add you to that fellowship of people that belong to him. Both living and dead for all times. Till the Lord comes again. And he'll invite you by asking you, do you believe that he's the Christ, the son of the living God? Are you willing to make that confession because you've changed your mind about him? Repented of your allegiance to Satan to give your allegiance to God? And you come forth because you want to be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. To be added to fellowship with him. Therefore, be unique belonging to Christ. We invite you to Christ. That's what we do. Because that's what the word of God does. So we can help you once you come while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.